Welcome to the Recruit Graduation Podcast. My name is Andrew, your host, and on behalf of myself and team, we send our love and prayers to all of you. Welcome to Episode 9 and to my special guest, retired Colonel Andrew Milburn, United States Marine Corps. Welcome, sir. Yeah, hello, Andrew. It's uh, a great, great pleasure to be on. It's great to have you. Now, you enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1987. You were commissioned a second lieutenant shortly after. You've had multiple deployments around the globe, and you've served as the Chief of Staff, Special Operations Command Central, and you recently retired in March of 2019. Congratulations on your success in the Marine Corps, and thank you for serving our country, sir. Yeah, thanks very much, Andrew. And I, you know, I, I do want to, I do want to just interject very, uh, very quickly there. I, um, uh, I, I didn't get a commission until some three years after I came in. I think I only mention that because I know a number of uh, of your listeners may have relatives or may themselves be uh, junior, you know, junior enlisted, fairly new uh, to to the service. And um, so I do want to I do want to emphasize that I started off at the very bottom of the pyramid as a as a private at, at Paris Island and, and in fact didn't get a commission until some three years after after graduating from uh, from boot camp. But again, it's an honor to visit with you today. Uh, we were introduced by a mutual friend who happens to be a spouse of a retired colonel as well in the Marine Corps. And she currently works for a company that supports military families. And so I just wanted to give her a big thank you for the introduction and being such a committed friend to myself. And I know she's a really good friend of your family. So Yes, indeed. So can I mention her, Gretchen Barnett? Big shout out to you. You recently published your first book called When the Tempest Gathers. And that documents your journey as a Marine Special Operations Commander during America's fight against ISIS. So congratulations on just having that published, what, a month ago? Yeah, yeah, actually the end of February. And, and you know, the book really, it, it, it covers from, uh, it, it covers my time in the Marine Corps from when, when I was a private all, all the way through to, to retirement. But, you know, rather than it just be kind of a chronological history, I've, I've, I've emphasized and focused on what I think were the most interesting, entertaining aspects of that career, and at times the most painful aspects of of uh, my career. And I, w- w- one thing that I'm, you know, and you've got to tell me if I'm talking too much here, Andrew, and uh, I'll go back to it. But one one thing I'm proud of in in um, receiving reviews of that book have been the flood of veterans, uh, not just Marines, every service and every era. You know, I've had emails from Vietnam veterans. The, the flood of veterans who have approached me saying, thank you for, you know, telling our story. Thank you for explaining, for for describing what it's like to to fight America's wars, uh, you know, in the either this generation, I mean, the generation that I could talk about, which was the time of the early 90s in Mogadishu, all the way through, as you commented, to 2016 and the special operations campaign against ISIS, and and at every rank too, you know. So the the book wasn't intended to be primarily about me. I would hope that those reading it would would see that it's really more of a testament to the people with whom I was fortunate enough to to serve. And that's one area that I definitely want to get to is that camaraderie because that's something I felt. Immediately after start starting to read your book was that that aspect of it, and so let's loop back to that 
But I first want to talk about and unpack how you came from being born in Hong Kong, growing up in the United Kingdom, where you attended St. Paul's School, University College London, and you actually graduated from law school. And then you enlisted as a Marine Corps private. Can you tell us about how that happened and that journey? Yes, certainly. And, uh, and, and you know, just to, um, uh, to reassure your listeners, I'll keep this uh, – I'll, I'll, I'll keep this fairly, uh, fairly short, but I, it, it is, it is whichever way you look at it, I suppose an entertaining story. It was particularly painful. I know to members of my family, certainly my parents, when I, I appeared to pass up what looked to be at the time, perhaps a promising law school, a law career, a career in law, uh, to enlist as a private in, in the Marine Corps. But, uh, but yes, you're right. So I was, uh, by background, I'm, I'm British. Uh, I was born in Hong Kong, which was a British colony back then, has since, of course, been turned over to China. And I uh, went to, to boarding school in the UK, which is actually great preparation for joining the military. You know, I was used to being away from home from the age of, uh, from the age of eight. And then, uh, and then w- went to University of London. I mentioned that because why it was while I was at University of London. And to that point, I, I planned to join the British military. That was my goal. And my father was British. I had dual citizenship. I had never been to the United States. My mother just happened to be an American. And so I had dual, as I mentioned, you know, two passports, but I hadn't, you know, really essentially used my U.S. passport for anything. So I um, planned to join the British Army, but during a rugby tournament, uh, I broke my leg very badly. And uh, the the British military said that you know I was a whatever the lowest level of of physical category they had then you know a four F you know you will not ever be able to serve in the military. My leg is still actually it's not you know I've got a metal knee now. Uh, my leg only bends ninety degrees. It's never bent more than ninety degrees since that injury. And um, and I mentioned that because that still should exclude me from service in the U.S. military. Uh, fortunately, um, you know, for reasons I'll explain, I managed to get past that. But, you know, it's worth it's worth talking about simply because, you know, it was a, a significant injury. It was, it, it was serious enough and the effects of it remained serious enough that uh, I'm, I'm technically physically unqualified for the military, but nevertheless have had a successful career. And I know uh, that you may have people listening who are struggling with things themselves, you know, physical injuries or overcoming whatever it may be, uh, in order to to join the military or in the early parts of their their military career, and and so hopefully that'll that'll provide um, uh, perhaps uh, some encouragement. But anyway, so uh, I um uh, I had to shift gear quickly. I was doing a philosophy degree, which, by the way, is not a very common degree in the in the Marine Corps, as you know, being a Marine. Absolutely. Uh, and and so yeah, I had to decide on a career, and chose law. So once I finished uh, studying philosophy, I went to law school at University of Westminster, and another alumni of the University of Westminster, by the way, is um, uh, a certain um, Mohammed Antazi, known as uh, Jihadi John. You know the infamous uh, British Islamic State executioner. Some of your listeners may have heard of. He was not. At university at the same time as me, but he went to the same university some years after me, which is quite ironic. 
so I finished I finished law school. Well, I almost finished law school. In the end, I did, but I I, had, I took a year sabbatical because I failed an exam and I had to retake it. And during that year, I traveled across, uh, well, really across the world. I was heading to Australia and I traveled through Turkey and Iran. I managed to get a transit visa for Iran, which was which was very unusual even back then in the eighties. Was in Iran actually when the Iraqis bombed uh, Iranian cities, which is deeply ironic since I spent so much of my subsequent career in Iraq. Um, but anyway, I got to uh, Islamabad in Pakistan, and I and I had to go to the U.S. embassy there uh, to uh, to exchange money and various other things. And I ran into these guys who uh, were just just super people. They were, you know, and they. They they just reeked of discipline and good health. They had you know close cropped hair and um, really smart looking uniforms. They were of course of course embassy guard marines. And I went back. Uh, they had a party that night at their house, the marine house. Well, you and I now know, of course, marine security guards live. It's a tough assignment, but they live a pretty privileged life, and they live in they live. Uh, in, in a style of luxury that is really unusual in the Marine Corps. But I didn't know that. I just saw that these guys lived in this extraordinary house with a swimming pool and a well-stocked bar. And I thought, this is great. This is the sort of life that I want. And so fast forward, I make it back to London. I retake my exams. I graduate from law school and I run into the one Marine recruiter in London. Remember, this is the 80s. And so there were, there were, um, U.S. high schools throughout Europe, and so there was a U.S. Marine recruiter in London back in the eighties, and uh, I walked into his net. You know, I was I was already pretty primed because I wanted to do something different. I uh, law school was a struggle for me. I had got through. I had a place uh, to uh, to do what we call an apprenticeship or a pupillage to be a barrister, a court lawyer. I knew I still wanted to do that, or at least I thought I did. But what I did know is I wanted to do something different for four years, see the world, and uh, and something perhaps a little adventurous before I settled down into a law career. And so it was that I that that that, that you know fate would have it that I walked into uh, into this marine recruiter, took the ASVAB, um, took the physical, you know, very uh, very nervous about that. But he had a team Air Force recruiter, uh, no Air Force doctor in in the UK who he knew was not very stringent and uh, he certainly wasn't because he passed me. And, um, and, uh, you know, before I, before you know it, I'm on my way to Paris Island. And remember I'd never been to the United States before. And so Paris Island was my first introduction to the United States. Well, not quite, uh, MEPS New York was actually, uh, where I've, where I arrived in my first touch point in, in the States. And there, uh, my military career almost ended before it began because they told me, you know, when they make you do, you probably remember at MAPS, you'd go through that physical and they make you do the right. duck walk. And of course I couldn't do the duck walk, you know, not with my knee. I still can't. And um, they said, okay, uh, you are not physically qualified for the military, let alone the Marine Corps. We are going to send you home. They then ran into administrative problems and I'm not making this up. They could not, when they realized that I came from the UK on a one-way ticket, they had no line of financial accounting to send me back to the UK. 
And so they they struggled with this for an hour or two while I sat on a bench, you know, pondering the end of my uh, my short lived uh, military career. And then the doc, the uh, not the doctor, the it was a it was a uh, Navy chief petty officer walked over and said, "Okay, yeah, go and stand in that line. You you're going to go to boot camp." You know, simply because they couldn't figure this one out. And, um, and you know, thereafter at, at boot camp, of course, I, I failed the physical there, but for exactly the same reasons, they kept me in boot camp, uh, um, graduated. And, uh, and when I got a commission some three years later, on my first day at OCS, again, I, I was uh, in, I found myself standing in the not physically qualified line. And at that point, I was a little more savvy. I was a corporal. I'd been in the service. Uh, enough to know what how to how to play this game, and so I told again it was a chief petty officer, and I told him, "Hey, chief, if I um if I'm not physically qualified, it must be service related because I've been in the Marine Corps already for three years." And the chief thought about that for a moment, and he said, "Okay, candidate, go and stand in that line." And so once again, you know, by a narrow margin, I found myself uh, managing to to remain in the Marine Corps. That is an amazing story. And you just bring up so many memories. And for our non-military folks, the duck walk, that immediately took me right back to MEPS. Um, you can imagine what that would be to test your physical ability to get into the military. So one thing that caught my you know, attention, I think one of the reasons I joined the Marine Corps, well, I know it is the reason I joined the Marine Corps, is exactly what you said. You met a Marine and they stood out, that discipline. And I met my first Marine. I had a brother that was killed in the Marine Corps when I was 10. And I went to his funeral, and they had a reserve unit that was doing the funeral. But I didn't know they were a reserve unit. I thought they literally were his best friends, because that's how they acted. And so I know what you mean when you meet a Marine for the first time. And I warn parents, you take your kids to graduation, they might become Marines. So um, there's a strong fragrance of just discipline and leadership that Marines. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, sir, but the reason Marines exist is because the country want us to exist. Have you heard that before? Yeah. Yeah. The, what's the uh, the saying was, and I forget who said it, um, it might have been uh, General Brute Krulak in the, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War when there was some discussion about why we should have a Marine Corps going ahead, because the whole concept of amphibious warfare seemed as though it might be obsolete in the nuclear age. And, you know, Brute Krulak said, you know, you're right, the United States does not need a Marine Corps. We have a Marine Corps because that's what the American public wants. And I think there's probably a lot of truth in that. You know, you and I know that, yes, the, you know, the, the Marine Corps is, it tends to be aligned with certain sorts of operation. But the bottom line is it's more of a mindset and it's an ethos. You know, amphibious operations could go away tomorrow. And indeed, they may well be. They may may already be obsolete. But that doesn't really matter because the fact is that the Marine Corps prides itself on being a number of things, one of which is very adaptable uh, and, and able to fight in the, in the words of our own Marine hymn, in every climb or place, and, uh, and, and to do so, we would like to think uh, better than any other service and more expeditiously to, you know, to, to get to where we need to be, where the nation needs us quicker than, uh, than, than any other force of a commensurate size. So, 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's and, and to that point, um, uh, President Truman said that the Marine Corps has a propaganda machine to rival the KGB, which was <laughs> not intended as a compliment that I think is probably entirely true. That's great. And thank you for sharing that that history. That was, you know, definitely inspiring to hear how you got your start. And another thing you said, too, was, you know, that's what makes our country so great in the Marine Corps and the other branches is the diversity. People that are coming from those different backgrounds, whether they're physical or emotional areas in their life that they're moving away from into a more structured and disciplined life. And oftentimes is really pivotal, not only in the individual's life, but that of their family. And so yeah. our audience today, parents of you know graduates at or soon to be graduates at boot camp, they're experiencing that right now, that transition from I, the way we say it, from civilian to Marine or to, you know, to a soldier or, or sailor. I'd like to transition to your book. I've had the honor of reading that, and I love the way that you use storytelling to place me right in the middle of the battlefield. But I think for me, how you describe the camaraderie between yourself and not only American warfighters, but the locals that you actually served with, how did you come to write the book and what was your motivation? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a great question, Andrew. And I'm not saying that to stall for an answer because, you know, to begin with, I didn't set out to write a book. I came back from a particularly difficult deployment. And like you, I had suffered uh, some personal tragedy in my life. I started writing really as a kind of a release, a catharsis. I realized that writing was one way that that I could just focus on something other than my own, you know, my own uh, my own problems. And and you know, regardless of background or strengths, or you know, we all go through times like this. Um, so writing was my release, and it was also there was an aspect of it that I thought, you know, if I write these stories, at least my family will you know, will understand, will, will know a little bit about what I was doing at times I was away. I, I actually found I really, you know, really enjoyed writing. And before I knew it, I had a book, I, essentially. I mean, I had the whole story. I showed it. I sent the manuscript to a guy named Bing West, who some of your listeners may have heard of if you look him up. He He's actually the co-author of General Mattis's autobiography. But Bing is a prolific writer and was famous before that um, for being a writer. He's had several books on New York Times bestseller list, but he's also very blunt and honest. So I sent him my manuscript and said, hey, what do you think? And uh, he said he really enjoyed it. He said, this is, you know, this is great. And, uh, and actually, Bing ended up writing the forward for my book book. Cut a long story short, it wasn't an easy time to find a publisher. It was, you know, in the aftermath of Iraq, uh, the nation had been at war for some 16 years. And Americans, frankly, were not interested in reading about what it was like to fight America's wars. They were more interested in other things. If you look at the New York Times bestseller list, there's lots of, you know, for the nonfiction, there's some political books, there's self-help books, and there's you know, the memoirs are kind of, they're either celebrities or they're books about addiction. There's, they're not books, you know, by, by guys who've generally now who've served in the military. But I did find a publisher. And um, as you as you commented, it came out about a month ago. It's quite unusual. When, when you look through, you know, if you search on Amazon, very few contemporary Marines have written memoirs. Um, in fact, this is the only one that I know of. Now, actually, I, I, I take that back. I know of one other. And so, the, you know, there's also an aspect uh, for me. I was ambivalent because I was, because we as Marines are 
pride ourselves on not being fond of self-promotion. So we will promote the service. As I mentioned, we are great at that. And there's a lot of chefs speeding about being Marines. But when it comes to writing a book about yourself or a memoir, although, as I mentioned, this book really is not about myself, you know, there's automatically a sense of um, almost suspicion, right? And so I was I was wary of that. That's why I was so pleased when the Marine Corps Gazette embraced the book. Uh, the Marine Corps as an organization has, I got I received an email the other day, actually a, a handwritten card from a um, former commandant of the Marine Corps who read the book. Uh, very, very gratifying to to learn that something that you've worked on like that has been accepted and applauded by your own organization as telling the story, uh, not of yourself, of other Marines and indeed other servicemen and women. So long, long answer to your question. That's really how I came came to write it. Well, well congratulations again on the book. It's, it's a wonderful book. And I want to just echo your comment and following up with what you said. Sometimes it's really difficult for a Marine, and I tell families this as well, and it doesn't really matter what branch, you'll never really understand what a military service member does. And more importantly, it's hard for them to articulate. There are things that we go through from boot camp, conflict, a war, or just here in the United States domestically, that it's really hard to describe. And I think, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the chest beating, you know, as a Marine Corps, absolutely. But when it comes to your individual accolades, those are really hard to describe. And so one of the areas in your book you made really clear was that distinction between the civilian not really understanding how we're fighting a war and what that exactly means, because often we're clouded here as civilians with media and activities. And sometimes we forget really what's going on on the front line, both humanitarianly and an actual conflict. So could you expand on that a little bit about how you tried to help, maybe I'll call them the non-military, understand what you were writing. Yeah, you know, um, Andrew, if you'll let me at this point, what, I, what I'd like to do is actually read from the, the forward to the book because I, I address that, you know, that exact point. Um, just a couple of paragraphs. Absolutely, sir. Yeah, let me, uh, give, me a, give me a second here. I'm, um, I'm positioning as <laughs> actually a, a skipping kids and dogs in my, uh, in my house that I think are uh, I'm sure a lot of your, uh, your your listeners will will relate to. Okay, so here's here's what I wrote in the in the forward. Although I I am the one telling the story, it is intended to be as much about those with whom I've served as it is about me, because I am a Marine, and without I hope appearing parochial, much of the story is about Marines who, in a sense, belong to a world of their own, with its emphasis on ritual, tradition, obedience, and hierarchy. The Marine Corps is a culture far removed from the society that it protects. Its rites of passage purposefully sever those ties and by an almost Pavlovian process of indoctrination transforms civilians into novitiates and then fully-fledged members of a fraternal order. And it works. Marines enjoy belonging to a profession whose demands most Americans would avoid. There's something enduringly familiar about their collective personality that I have always found comforting. The Marines who landed with me in Mogadishu were much the same as those who marched on Baghdad, captured Fallujah, and subsequently took the fight to ISIS in northern Iraq. Upbeat, funny, brave, gracious, savvy, and profane, and devoted to one another to an extent that often surprises outsiders. It is this aspect of the culture that motivates its members far more than lofty concepts of duty or country. They do what they do for each other. It is the camaraderie engendered by shared hardship for a common cause 
that helps offset the trauma of combat and the frustrations, discomfort, frequent boredom, and modest pay that define military service. Marines mourn the loss of comrades with the intensity of a family member, but they accept that the possibility of death is an implicit clause in the contract which, as they remind each other frequently, no one forced them to sign. They express this through dark humor and a wry acceptance of the way things are. It's not a culture that encourages hand-wringing or self-pity. And then, you know, I mentioned um, to, to your point the fact that such a small percentage of the U.S. population serves in the military. You know, there's that, that famous quote that you may have heard. It's not really famous, but uh, it's a, the, the common graffiti seen throughout Iraq was, America is not at war. The Marine Corps is at war. America is at the mall. You know, it's kind of that, that uh, it's not really bitter, but it's just an acceptance of the fact such a small percentage of the U.S. population serves in the military. And such a small percentage of that population, um, you know, is even in, involved in in, uh, in actual combat overseas. Uh, but among that group or among just, you know, the military in general, there's this, this tremendous sense of pride and, and camaraderie that even the people who hate their time in the military remember the rest of their lives and, and they miss once they get out. That paragraph you wrote, the couple of paragraphs that you read were ones I highlighted. You know, I think that was the immediate attraction to your writing. And I hope I can articulate this. Your sentence, sentences are so complex, but so easy to read and I digested them. Yes, because I was a Marine and I could hear the story that you were telling based upon my experience. It was just a fascinating way that you write that really told your message. Sir, what is camaraderie? Wow, that's a, uh, that, that, you know, that's, that's a, a tough one to define. I, and I suppose the best, you know, I'll give it a shot. It's, uh, it, it, it's that feeling that, um, that you can rely on those around you, you know, literally w- with your life. And, uh, and, you know, with, without it being transactional, you know, it's not, Hey, if I do this for you, you will do that. It's just the understanding that you can rely on them and, the, and their understanding that they can rely on you. And, and that's, that's the way it is. It's based on a, a, a common culture, I suppose is the best way to do it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think, you know, again, for a lot of our listeners with recruits at boot camp, that's where that starts. And I know, you know, we're actually having this podcast mid coronavirus, and you know, there's a lot of uncertainty with are they getting the proper training? And a lot of the training really is the building of that camaraderie, that brotherhood, that sisterhood that only can be captured during an intense grouping of individuals with a common goal. And as they learn and train together, I think it comes to what you deliver and just what you said, but in your words, in your book. And so, yes, sir, awesome job describing that. I once read that a leader is a lone nut until somebody follows them. Sir, you have been a leader, a leader in the Marine Corps and our country, and you've also been a follower. Can you describe what leadership is about, not only from your perspective, but from some of those that may be or have followed you? Yeah, so leadership is, to me, it it is being able to endanger, uh, engender, sorry, <laughs> engender a, a common sense of purpose among a group of people who may, who may otherwise not 
not see that common purpose and, and, and getting them to want to do things that otherwise they may not feel motivated or, or want to do. And it's not manipulation. It is, it, it, they do it because they see some shared interest and, and it's that interest may not necessarily be selfish and may simply be what I explained earlier in terms of camaraderie and, and, and culture. You know, there's leadership is, you know, as we're seeing today, even more so in, in the, you know, when you read the papers, it's a very, it's a very complex thing. And, and, and it really, again, comes back again and again. It cannot be purely transactional. You cannot simply rely on your position and your rank. You, you have to, um, you have to rely on so much more. And, and you can't just rely on, on flash personality or charisma because, the people who follow you have to sense that you genuinely care for them and that you will do your best to to take care of them and look after their interests as as well as you know at the same time it's not easy obviously you have the mission to to accomplish too uh so so there again you know there's just no way you can describe leadership in one or two lines as as most of us understand you continue to learn about leadership until the day you take off the uniform and, and, you know, I'm still learning about it. I mean, I've been retired for, for a year, but I was, you know, at any given time in, in my career or, you know, the times that I spent, uh, I was fortunate and I had many years in command. And I could tell you that every time I would look back at myself the previous year and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe, you know, <laughs> I did this or that. I mean, I was constantly learning. You've got to be honest with yourself too. That's the other part. You're all, you're constantly walking a line between you've got to be very honest about assessing yourself, assessing your strengths and your weaknesses. And when you know you have weaknesses, you either, you, you find some way to mitigate them. And uh, some, one way to mitigate them is to, is to rely on people who, who are strong in those areas, frankly, and just be honest about that. But you have to learn. You have to be honest with yourself to learn from your mistakes. But at the same time, don't let your mistakes paralyze you. You know, and no, you know, don't don't let your honest assessment of yourself make yourself so insecure that you are no longer capable of leading or making decisions. So, as you know, many of our listeners are moms and dads, spouses, children, and loved ones of our future warfighters currently attending recruit boot camp. Now, you went from a private to a colonel, as you explained to us, and you've experienced every aspect of not only the Marine Corps but the lifestyle of a Marine, a husband, a father. Would you mind sharing some of the memories from those times with either your interaction with your family? And like you mentioned, we have two families. We really have the Marine Corps family and we have our own family, but they really intertwine. And that can be in itself very complex. Can you share any of those memories with us? Yes, I, I, I certainly can. I, I, it, it's Frankly, it's not easy to, to combine those lives and feel as though you are doing really well, uh, you know, as, as a as a marine, as a, an officer, or as a leader, as a husband, as a father. Uh, it you know it, it takes constant effort, and I, I would be the last to tell you that I've you know always done that uh, very well. Um, you know, and it really it really highlights the extraordinary role that military spouses do play uh, because they they have to pick up so much of the of the slack. I mean, when you are away from home for extended deployments and your mind really has to be on what you're doing there, you can never take your mind off your family. No one can ever do that. You know, I wouldn't 
suggest that, but at the same time, you, you need to remain focused and, um, having, and so what happens is that military spouses often, um, become extraordinarily independent and strong and, and do things that, you know, that customarily might, it might be the, the male. And you know what? I shouldn't talk that way anymore because it, it could be a male or female, um, service member, but the spouse, let me put it that way. The, the, the spouse is the one who, who steps up and becomes essentially a single parent for, for periods of time. And then, you know, I, I will say this, that it, with, with children, it, it's tough being away from them and you feel guilty about it, but almost, I mean, without exception from the military children I've known, they develop an extraordinary sense of pride about being part of a military family. I mean, my kids now, I'm retired, just seem disappointed. You know, I'm at home a lot more, but I got to tell you, they really miss being able to say their dad was a Marine and living on base. And um, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize how much a part of their lives and how much pride they derived from that until, you know, after I retired. Does that, does that answer your question, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you hit it. I've worked with a lot of spouses over the last couple of years and, you know, unemployment for the active duty spouse is enormously too high. And you are absolutely right when you said they become strong and independent individuals and amazing humans that are highly educated, innovative and productive. And so, yes, you absolutely hit the nail on the head, and I appreciate you saying those words. Sir, I want to thank you again. It's just an honor that you even agreed to be on our podcast. We're we're new to the market, but our goal is really to provide what you just did, and that's the inspiration and hope and faith for our families that are about to start this journey. And I'm not just giving you these accolades because we're Marine Corps brothers, but because you have a passion for life and you have a determination to change the lives around you. And you especially had a commitment to our country. So congratulations on your career, on your retirement, on your book, and then being around your children and uh, giving them new things to brag about. So, sir, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew. And I, I just want to say, um, uh, you know, for those of you listeners on LinkedIn, they can look me up, Andrew Milburn. Uh, I am on Facebook too, uh, and I am on Twitter at Andy Milburn Eight. Andy Milburn Eight, and the book is um, it's it's available on Kindle now. So, uh, uh, which is uh, considerably cheaper. I used to wait for the Kindle version to come out um, on on Amazon, and um, you know, I invite your your listeners just to take a look. I mean, you can look, read the reviews, and. Um, and, and I think Amazon even lets you to look, you know, look inside the book and read, uh, read excerpts. So, um, Absolutely. And I will post all of that information as well. Now, I got it on Amazon. Uh, no, I didn't actually. I went to Amazon, but ordering it was going to take too long. So I downloaded it onto my iPad. And so it's definitely available. It's definitely a very engaging book. You will immediately be captured um, by his, by, you know, his storytelling and his articulation of his of his experience as as a marine and as a human and as an american. Well, thank you very much Andrew. It's been a uh, it's been a great pleasure and um and and all my best to uh, to to your listeners. 
I want to thank everybody for listening in today, and especially Colonel Andrew Milburn for his time. Congratulations, sir, for all your military service and your future success with your book. Thank you, everyone, and have a wonderful and awesome day.